Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And we ask tonight that you would illumine its truth to us. Thank you that your word is clear, it's pure, that it is understandable for those who will seek after it. We're so grateful that in a world of turmoil, where there's so much confusion and people have no idea what direction to turn, what is even right, thank you for your word that is a solid rock that we can put our full confidence in, for it represents you, who are also referred to as a rock. We ask tonight that you would stir our hearts and minds with the truth that is found here, that whether we are parents or grandparents or just someone that loves and cares for children, that we would be more effective in the call that you have for us. So help me tonight, God, my own thoughts, I pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. All right, we are on handout number four, and you can see tonight's topic is disciplining your child. Now, let me just say by way of introduction, Thus far, in the first two weeks, one, we spoke about the need, A, for ministry to children, but also how do you introduce a child to Christ? And I am absolutely convinced that there have been so many skewed decisions in the 70s and 80s of children who, quote-unquote, prayed a prayer, invited Jesus into their heart, Uh, accepted Christ, committed themselves to Christ, all kinds of terms that you don't even find within the Bible itself. And then what we've seen happen across evangelical America is that when many of these um, young men and women reach their college ages, they walk away from the faith. And it's because conversion has never really taken place. And so, unfortunately, I think a lot of the parenting Um, approaches in our day are dealing with, you know, here's five things you need to do, here's six things, uh, you know, and these lists of things, and you think, well, if I just get these down, I'm going to be successful. But as we dealt with primarily in Parenting 101, to be an effective parent, we need to be the right kind of person. And really what we're looking at, though I will look at some specific how-tos, but more importantly, the biblical theology behind parenting. Because if you really understand that, you don't need a list. If you understand God's heart for us as His children and what our heart should be for our own children, then we are going to be in a far better position by the grace of God to raise them well. But you can't raise well an unregenerate child. And so fundamentally is to first introduce your children to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the most critical thing to begin with. But we'll speak of next time some critical life skills that hopefully will impart to our children along with certain theological truths that you want your children to know when they leave your home. I mean, what things, rock bottom, non-negotiables, do you want your child to really understand when they're 18 years old? Basically, you have them until they're 18, and then they're gone. They may be off to the university, and they're home for, you know, a matter of weeks in the summer, and then those summers become abbreviated with internships and other things as they prepare to leave. And then some leave your home at 18. So it's a window of time, but it's an acceptable window. 
that if we invest our lives well, we can invest well into these children. All right, so by way of introduction here on your handout, we have been learning in this course that successful parenting is not an accident, but that it is the result of having a parenting plan as we are dedicated to shaping our children by His help so that He, God, might be honored by their lives. Obviously, every parent wants to develop certain character qualities like respect, compassion, care, confidence, and unselfishness, and we could list 27 more. We want our child to have a heart for God and to be the kind of person that he can mold. A child being raised in a Christian home should ideally see these character traits modeled by his parents. Proverbs 22.6 admonishes us as parents to train up a child in the way he should go. However, as parents, we need to be going in the way we desire our children to go, in the path of righteousness that God has. I should say, I suppose parenthetically, while we're on Proverbs 22.6, that this rock-bottom principle of God is often misunderstood and has been, modern psychology has been written into it. And so some have said, well, train up a child in the bent. And they say, well, you, you find out what your child's bent is. Oh, if he's athletically oriented, if he's artistically gifted, if whatever his bent is, in that when he's old, he won't depart from it. And they would say that this verse has little to nothing to do with any kind of a promise or principle for raising a godly heritage. And without me naming names, the reason some popular books were written with that bent is because their own children were disastrous. And so sometimes our view of things can be flavored by our own failure. The word here for way is derek in Hebrew, and it's used all the way through the Proverbs to contrast the way, the path, the direct of a righteous man versus the way, the path of a fool, or in some cases, the scoffer. And so God is admonishing us to raise our children up in the way of righteousness. And when the child's old, he's not going to depart that way. He's going to continue in that way. But if we're going to do that as parents, and again, God can work in spite of us, not because of us, we need to be going in the way that we desire our children to go. For example, number two, initially, even before a child is regenerated by the Spirit through receiving Christ as his personal Savior, if the parents show compassion to others, then the child will learn to show compassion to others. So that's what you're doing. You're, you're modeling before the child what you want them to become. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, coupled with biblical truth, and the two are wed together, becomes really the character um, shaping force that God uses. If the parents have a heart to sing praises to God and to worship Him, then the child will follow their example. And so every parent must ask, am I becoming the kind of Christian that I someday would like my child to become? Jesus speaks that when a disciple is fully grown, so to speak, he'll be like his teacher. 
And of course, when we think of discipleship, which was the theme of the last week's session, we shouldn't first think about the guy in the battalion or the man at the office or the fellow I work with, you know, in the factory. Number one, first and foremost, I should be thinking of my children. Those are the most important disciples that God will ever entrust to you. Certainly, number four, none of us has a foolproof parenting plan. Because while we may know what God has called us to do, the truth is we do not always do it. We all fail in many ways. We are sinners. And again, when we speak about raising godly children, they're not raised by perfect parents because there are no perfect parents. But a critical question every one of us has to ask and answer is not the issue, am I perfect? It's not an issue of perfection. It is an issue of direction. What is the overall direction and flavor of my life? And if there's recurrent issues in my life that are not changing, then I need to ask why. And it might be that there are some deficiencies in those who discipled me. Maybe I am modeling things that my parents did that were totally unbiblical. And we need to ask, well, why are these deficiencies in my life and what is God doing to change them? Because if I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and that's his promise, then I need to ask, is he really strengthening me? And God, again, uses the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and those two are wed together to bring about life change. Number five, for this reason, it will be very difficult to teach our children respect and consideration if we do not model respect and consideration before them. Sometimes parents come in and maybe they have a rebellious teenager. They say, well, the the child just doesn't listen. And one of the first questions I want to find out as their pastor is, what kind of the relationship does the mom and dad have? Because let's say if the dad is not, you know, kind and loving towards his wife and his wife is not submissive and respectful to her husband, then there's a model there that the children are going to emulate. I mean, where do children learn submission? They're supposed to learn it in the smallest microcosm of life, the home. And if it's not being modeled there, and this is the challenge of our society, this is the challenge of the government school system, and we have a number of people in our church who are teachers, some who have been administrators and principals and and they said it's just seemingly feels so impossible because we're dealing with discipline problems all day. Why? Because the family is breaking down. And the whole idea of respect for authority is supposed to be emulated between dad and mom. Number six, yet teaching your children about respect and consideration can occur even if you have failed. And so, for example, if your children misbehave and you snap at them with unrighteous anger, because there is a righteous anger, you know that, be angry but sin not, you can still take correction, corrective action and teach them from failure. You can apologize and say to your child, I was wrong for the way I reacted. Will you forgive me? For in just by admitting you are wrong and then by praying with the child that God would help you as their parent to be more like Christ, even in your repentance, you'll be teaching respect and humility to your child. So many times God uses lessons out of our own failure as parents. Doesn't mean that the experience is wasted. 
God can use any kind of situation. The focus on this session is on the subject of discipline with a goal of building godly character. For we are admonished concerning our children by God in Ephesians 6 and verse 4 to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you were here last time under the subject of discipleship, we focused largely on the latter uh, admonition, the instruction of the Lord. Tonight, we'll focus more on the discipline of the Lord. Sadly, however, we live in a day where many of God's people have, distort, have, a, have a distorted or have distorted inc- and incomplete views of biblical discipline. And so let's see if we can examine what God says about the two dimensions of discipline highlighted in Scripture. So there are two dimensions of discipline that are highlighted in Scripture. The first is the shaping realm of discipline. That's where we want to start tonight, the shaping realm of discipline. Most Christians, when they hear of discipline, whether it concerns God's discipline over us or our discipline over our children, their tendency is to think about a wrong that has been done that needs to be fixed. That's just a one aspect of discipline. And if that's all we think of, then we're going to have a distorted view of how God wants to use us as dads and moms, grandparents, or just those who love and care for children in shaping their lives. However, biblically speaking, God's discipline towards us is not always corrective for sins we have willfully committed, but it is also designed to change deficiencies in us that do not reflect Christ's character. So when we speak about the discipline of God, it's not always because we've done something wrong. We might be right in the center of God's will, obeying Him as much as we know, but He'll still bring His discipline on our life to shape character. For the growing and maturing Christian, more often than not, God's discipline is to build us into Christ's image. And so he sovereignly allows for experiences to come our way that will accomplish this end. If we understand that principle right there, and we project that kind of attitude towards our children, it's going to have a profound impact on their life. And if they really understand that, Paul had the positive aspect of discipline in view when he said this in Romans 8, 28, and 29. This is a verse, Romans at least 8, 28 is one of the top 100 verses I think every Christian should memorize. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the first among many brethren." Romans 8.28 gives us a picture of God's providence as it operates in our daily lives, something um, we should want our children to know and discover. The verse does not begin, and we wonder. It doesn't say, and we pray that God causes all things, or, and we imagine God causes all things, or, and we desire, or, and we guess, or, and we want God to cause everything together for good. Rather, it begins, and we know, and we know. And that's important. Interestingly, the Greek word for know, it's the word oida, 
means to have an absolute, unshakable confidence. It's a very strong word in the original, such that we might paraphrase this verse, and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt. This is a principle that we need to own for ourselves, and if we own it for ourselves, it will change the way we view our parenting habits, and it will help our children immensely. The only way we can know this is through the illumination of Scripture, which is why it is essential that we are teaching and training our children using the Bible as our authority so that they share our convictions. So it's very important that your children understand why you do what you do. So I was in discussion with a young man here tonight about he was writing, I think, a defense of why we should abstain from alcohol. Now, that is a very much of a minority view today. Uh, 35, 40 years ago, 95% of evangelical pastors like myself taught you shouldn't drink. They got there different ways, but they virtually all taught that. Now, it's almost just the opposite. And so, let's just say you have the conviction that you don't want your children to use alcohol. How are you going to get them there? Can they walk you through the biblical principles between, say, the distinction between strong drink, something that God forbids, what drunkenness actually is, what it can be to cause a brother to stumble? Um, does it have the appearance of evil? Does it really glorify God? Just, you know, bedrock principles. And what do we even mean by strong drink? Are we talking about whiskey or rum? Obviously not. They come almost a thousand years after the Bible are completed. So what does the Bible mean by strong drink? Uh, technically, I've always taught this, the Bible does not teach abstinence. It teaches you should not get drunk or use strong drink with the exception of a dying, despairing man, much like we'd give morphine as an act of kindness. But it doesn't teach abstinence in that they mixed wine with water to make it pure and drinkable, and the bacteria would be, um, there's polyphenols in alcohol that when mixed with water, it kills the bacteria and makes it safe to drink. And so, um, with this young gentleman, I said to him, well, your friends who are disputing you, ask them why they believe it's okay to use strong drink. And what do they even mean by strong drink? And what does, the, what does the biblical culture mean by it? Now, this is just one example, but my point is, is you can give a rule without the rationale behind the rule where the child owns biblically the conviction because the child is convinced this is what God actually says. So when all the friends are saying, you know, well, our buddies at the Christian school have seen this movie or that movie, and you as a parent say, you know, I don't think we should do that. Well, why? Everybody else is doing it. And you walk through what God says, I'll have you to be wise to the things that are good and innocent to the things that are evil, that you're to set your mind on the things that are pure and holy and worthy of praise and so forth. And you begin to walk through the biblical principles. And then, you know, again, these people who evaluate these movies 
I don't trust their evaluation most of the time because they're going to run their mind through the garbage to be able to say, oh, well, it's a pretty good movie. There's a few sexual scenes in it and a little bit of language, but overall, it's a good movie with a great message. Why would I trust some guy who goes watches an R-rated movie or a PG-13 movie, and the standards are always lowered with every generation? Why would I trust his judgment? The fact is, is that there are websites that will say, well, there's, even by non-Christians, and it's got language and this and that, and say, would that be honoring to the Lord? Would Jesus sit in that movie and watch it with us if he were physically present? And this was his millennial kingdom. And so you're helping them to understand the biblical principle and why it's so important to watch over our hearts with all diligence, because from them come the issues of life. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, and that happens through the illumination of Scripture. Number nine, the verse promises that God causes all things to work together for good, including all of the millions and millions of circumstances that you will face contingent on being called according to His purpose. If you look at the verse, it says in verse 28 up above, to those who are called according to His purpose, it looks kind of like a verb in our English Bible, doesn't it? Unless you have actually the King James or the New King James, and it's a little more precise here, where it says to those who are the called, it's actually a noun. It's referring to a group of people. To those who are the called, he's referring to believers. This is not some wholesale promise that applies to anyone in life. It applies to the called, namely born-again people. Those are the ones that God has called. Number 10, the verse does not say you will see all things working together or for that matter that God causes all things to occur because he doesn't. God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil, Habakkuk says. When one is tempted, he's not to blame God for it. Or that all things are good. The verse doesn't say that. A lot of things happen are not good, but that he's working them for a purpose. Um, My daughter was teaching this principle to her girls. They went to the park. My son-in-law just took on a senior pastorate outside of, oh, actually in downtown Raleigh. And and they went to this park, and uh, they were real excited to go there. And while they were off walking the trails, they came back, and the windows of the car were smashed out, and some things were taken. What happened was not good. That was evil. But God works all things together for good. That's the promise. And in God's providence... Through the whole ordeal, my wife met this lady because she was with them who had brought her family to the park, and Audrey started speaking with this lady, and she said, oh, I I wish I had given her the address of the church, and she got it, and she went back and found the lady, and as it turns out, this lady was going to a, a Methodist church, which for the most part, Methodists in the United States have abandoned the gospel. They're pro-LGBTQ, just haven't officially sanctioned it because the African Methodists outvoted the American Methodists, but they're already doing gay marriages without being disciplined, according to the book of 
discipline and order, which they're supposed to follow. Not to mention there's not a single United Methodist seminary that affirms biblical inerrancy. There's one called Asbury, but it's not technically United Methodists, but they can't get rid of it because its history goes back 200 years. But all of the seminaries that uh, are United Methodists deny the infallibility of the Bible. And if you went to a conservative seminary, they won't even consider you for ordination anymore. So she said, you know, you're probably not in a good church. And she was really gentle. She said, why don't you just come and visit? So she said, well, I thought maybe there was something wrong about that church. Well, as it turns out, these, this family, they're not saved. And they show up the next Sunday. And my wife is there because she came up for the weekend and to help our daughter-in-law with some special things. And, um, and then she came back the next Sunday. And then she texted me yesterday and she said, Grace, Anna, and Grant, had that couple over to the house, and they're so close to becoming Christians. And it started with going to the park and getting your windows smashed out. See, it's either true or it's not. Either God is working everything together for good to those who are the called believers, or He's not. And it's a faith issue. So, number 11, if God works all things together for good, and he does, then it is very important that we understand the good for which he is working. For those, here's the good, he spells it out in the next verse, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of election are often confused and mixed together, but they are two distinct doctrines. And by the way, even the Calvinist understands and teaches that. And Calvinism is obviously a broad subject. Someone says, are you a Calvinist? And well, what do you mean by that? Do I believe in infant baptism? No. Well, that's Calvin's ecclesiology. Do I believe the church has replaced Israel and that we should run it like a theocracy such that if need be, we put someone to death like Calvin did for theological heresy? And he said, make sure the wood's green so that he suffers much. Obviously not. I don't embrace his eschatology, his doctrine of latter times. But there are aspects that John Calvin taught that are absolutely true and biblical. But what I'm trying to say is that even the Calvinists, you know, people call up on the radio and they say, well, do you believe in predestination? And I know what they mean. What they mean is, do you believe that God chose Joe to go to heaven and Susie to go to hell? That's what they mean by it. But that's not what the Calvinist means by it. And that's certainly not what the Bible means by it. The doctrine of predestination is that once you're saved, God has a commitment to form Christ's image into you. Now, the doctrine of election, as I've said, every biblical Christian believes it. It's not does God elect, it's how does he elect. And I believe he elects on his foreknowledge. And that foreknowledge is indeed God knowing beforehand how a person would freely respond to general revelation and to the work of the Holy Spirit when he convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So every Christian believes in election. That's not the issue. It's how does God elect? And for 
the more stringent Calvinist, he says that God chooses, rescues some, independent of them totally, to come to faith, and he allows others to perish. But the doctrine of predestination is that once you are saved, God has a purpose, and the purpose is to make you like Jesus. So, number 13, the biblical doctrine of predestination simply says that when God saves you, he has an unfailing and an unending and an unrelenting commitment to make you more like his son. It's an an irreversible process that he that began the good work in you will, will, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The good that Paul is referring to in Romans 8, 28 is not simply to make you happy and to provide for your needs, but to make you holy and more like Jesus. The greater good is for each of us to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That Christ might be the firstborn could be translated that he might have preeminence or that he might have priority among God's people. This simply means that God wants to make you like his son, not for your honor and glory and praise, but so that by your changed life, he might display Jesus Christ in you so that he might be glorified through you. That's the purpose. God wants to make you like Jesus. Why? For the glory of God. Why do we exist? We exist for God's glory and that we can know him and enjoy him. That's why he made us. That is God's objective, that Christ might be glorified by having first place in our lives as more and more we reflect the character of Jesus. This is a major objective that God has for his children, which is precisely why Paul could tell the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19, he says, my children with whom I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. Same principle as Romans 8, 28 and 29. God's working everything, every circumstance, every event that happens in your life if you are a part of the called so that you can be more and more like Jesus, that Christ might be formed in you. Paul had the same truth in view when he wrote 2 Corinthians 3, 2. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. That's a great statement. You know, Paul sent letters to different churches, but if people were learning the truth of those letters and being shaped into Christ's image, then he says, you're it, man. You are a living letter of what I am trying to communicate through these written letters. This is an aspect, not the sole aspect, but it is an aspect of the Father's discipline for us. So that, as Hebrews 12 affirms, we may share his holiness and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. If we, who have been given the right and privilege to be called children of God, only think of discipline as correction for wrong we have done, then we will have a distorted view of how to discipline our children and what discipline even means. So again, the average Christian, you ask them, discipline your children, oh, you're going to talk about spanking. Well, that's maybe an aspect of discipline, but that's only like half the chart. 
On the other half of the chart, God's discipline is to make us like Christ. So we need to think when we think of our role, we take the place of the Lord, so to speak, as parents in the Decalogue, right, the Ten Commandments, and the, um, we are standing in the place of the Lord. So what are we trying to do well, in the early years? Before they even understand the gospel, we're shaping behavior. We're building character. And it's not like, um, you know, everything that they do is wrong and needs to be spanked. There are just some things they just don't know. Hey, listen, Charles, I know you're just four years old, but, you know, when Mr. Jeffrey came up to you, you should have reached your hand out and looked at him in the eye and, 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 and then, you know, like you cared about him as a person. Why do that? Because you're building character into their lives. That's an aspect of discipline. That's a huge aspect of parenting. And that's what God does in discipline. It's not just, you know, I'm spanking you for wrong, but I'm shaping you for right. And there comes a point when the child is regenerated by the Spirit, whatever age that happens at, and then you are standing in the place of the Lord, and you're relating the Scripture to the events that are going on in their lives, and saying, well, this is what Scripture says about this particular event. That presupposes that I'm in the Word of God, I'm reading God's Word, I'm spending time with God. And you know, the beauty of it all is that Typically, because God is so faithful that as you spend time with Him, the very thing you are studying that day is what you're going to need for maybe that very day or that week. And God is putting truth into your heart because He sees what is coming down the pike in two days and how you're going to take that very passage of Scripture and relate it to the child's life. It's so cool how it works. Only God could pull this off, but He wants to pull it off if we're open and available to him. But you see, then our, our child rearing is, ah, just like the father wants to build Christ's character in me. I want to stand in the place of the Lord and take the responsibility that I have in that and build Christ's character into my children. Number 23 if we think as parents that our only goal in disciplining our children is to correct them when they have done wrong, then we will be negligent in our duty to shape them positively even when they are not wrong. So, you know, parenting is a big, big thing. And again, you know, give me five steps on how to spank. See, what we miss is the big overarching biblical principles that God has given us on what we are to do and what we are to be. And when we get that, we don't need a list. We're able to see life through God's lens as it relates to our children. So let's look at a second aspect. Not only is there the shaping realm of discipline, there's the corrective realm of discipline. Beyond the commitment parents are to have in shaping Christ's image into our children as the Father shapes us. There's also to be the corrective side of discipline, which is in view in Ephesians 6 and verse 4. 
There we read, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The shaping of a child's life begins very early as we hold our little infant children, as we sing to them and pray over them while talking to them. I mean, you can't underscore how critically important that is. And that's why God doesn't say, well, six weeks is up, and so I'll drop them off at the church daycare. That's really bad, churches that have, oh, but we put a nice face on it. We call it a, a child learning center or any number of terms we can give it. And churches have gone into the daycare business, and they have denied the role that God has given to young moms. Now, my hat is off to any mother who has to work to put food on the table. And God knows that, and we've never been, like, rigidly legalistic. But if people want to know what God's ideal is, and we're afraid to say it because it's so countercultural then we're hirelings as pastors. And we're not doing what God has called us to do and to be. And so even in these early days and years, there's a relationship that is being built that nobody can do for you. Our children do not automatically know what is expected of them, and so we must spend time teaching them and encouraging them for they need our guidance as we lovingly lead them into compliance with praise. By the way, let me just go back to that previous point. When young couples come in, and I do premarital counseling, and there's six one-hour appointments that are prerequisite, and they have about 20 hours of homework that they have to do, if I'm going to marry them, I said, look, you you know, you can go right down. I was talking to a police officer last night in our church, and he was telling me about another police officer who's done like 120 marriages. I said, 120? Yeah, just in the last few. How do you do that? He's a notary. They just come. I, one couple came to me, a young Marine couple years ago, and they were new Christians. They'd come to Christ in our church, and I'd baptize them, and they said, Pastor Cry, we almost feel like we're not married. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, we went down to the courthouse in Beaufort two years ago, and I know the lady who was on the phone. I won't mention her because this will run out on tape. I'm not even sure she's still alive, but she was on the phone, and she, she said, oh, hold on just a second, and she took the phone. Yeah, looks like, yeah. Yep. Put her stamp on it. Congratulations, you're married. And right back to the phone. So my point is, if you just want someone to marry you and have a, some legal document, you can get it quite easily but I'm not in the marrying business. But one of the questions I ask is, what are you going to do when children come? And how are you going to prepare financially before children come? And so they have to show me a budget where they can live on his salary. And if they can't live on his salary, I'm not going to marry him because he's not ready to be a leader in his home. Now, if she wants to work until God blesses them with children, they want to save that money and maybe put a little down payment on a house, fantastic, wonderful. 
but they build a budget off of his salary. And so what happens to so many of these people, and this is why my heart goes off to them, because again, we see a lot of people come to this church by conversion, and they come sometimes with massive debt, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 in credit card debt. And now they're bringing all these student loan debt. I had a couple in my office, $178,000 between the two of them in student loan debt. I mean, it's just crushing. And so, you know, they come to Christ, they, they've got these moral commitments and obligations. And so what, what are we going to do with the kids? We see God's ideal. And so it, it's not always an easy thing. So I'm compassionate, understand. But I also want to help the next generation. So when you're training your children, again, you're walking all through life. Well, why does mom stay home? Does God really teach that? When that young lady goes to Clemson or USC or Harvard or Yale or wherever she goes, she is going to be hammered that she's an absolute fool to think that she should stay home with her degree. That's what she's going to be told. It's going to be drilled in her head. And if your child doesn't have a biblical conviction on why we are doing what we are doing, the culture is going to shape that child. What number are we on? Anybody remember? Four. Thank you. Someone's listening. Thank you, John. When having to correct our children for the wrong they have done, our discipline is to be just like God's discipline. It is to come from a heart of love and not as a payback for the sin they have done. Let me explain. Hebrews 12, that describes the disciplining hand of God, makes it very clear that God is not getting back at us for something we have done. Notice it says in, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And you'll notice the change in typeset telling you that this is an Old Testament quotation, namely from Proverbs, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Now, verse 5 brings out two improper responses to God's discipline, namely to regard it too lightly or to faint under his disciplining hand. Those are one of two extremes. Some Christians and some children have become so calloused in their relationship with the Lord or with their parents that they do not even see the seriousness of God's discipline, much less their parents' discipline. They regard it so lightly that they are not motivated to make any changes, and then God or the parents are forced to go deeper with their discipline. Now, that's sometimes where parents are starting, so a couple comes in the office, they're a blended family, they got a bunch of kids together, they're both new Christians, and the complaint is the kids don't listen to us. Now, that just didn't happen overnight, and it's not going to be fixed overnight. So you're trying to meet people where they're at, and you bring them along, and what steps can you take to begin to change that? But that's taking discipline too lightly. And if our children are taking discipline too lightly, there's a real heart issue that's going on there that we want to address and explore and ask God for wisdom of how we're going to see this turned around. At the other end of the spectrum is the person who, when chastised by God, complains that God's hand upon him is simply too much. 
And so they become despondent or depressed or they give up, they faint. Usually, when God first speaks to the believer in sin, he speaks with a rebuke. He simply speaks to us sternly as a wise parent would do. Uh, You're reading the word. You're not really aware that something's an issue in your life. You're not necessarily, you know, living in utter rebellion. Maybe it's just a a new positive dimension that, that God wants to build into you. I remember as a relatively new Christian, I was reading Ephesians 4, and it talks about, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, that it may give grace to those you know, who hear. And as I was reading that, God was kind of revealing to me that I had a sarcasm issue, that I would like to tell jokes as a college student at the expense of someone else using sarcasm. Oh, it'd get a good laugh, but it would hurt somebody. And so God rebuked me through his word. Sometimes uh, you know you're in sin. It's not a blind spot. It's just, I know I'm doing what's wrong. And you're reading the text or you're hearing a sermon or a message and God speaks to you with a, with a rebuke. That's what, that's what we typically do with our kids at first. We don't haul them off and spank them. I hope you don't. Sometimes we just need like a stern word. Here, here's what we really need to see happen. And again, you're not just giving a rule, you're giving the reason why and about pleasing God and the biblical principle behind it. If you're a wise parent, when you discipline your children, the first thing you typically do is not to haul them off, but to speak to them. Likewise, God begins with a rebuke in your inner spirit by the Holy Spirit, illuminating the truth of Scripture in your heart. However, sometimes God's discipline has to go to the next level, where he not only speaks to you by rebuke, but he also disciplines you by the rod. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, I thought God loved everybody. Well, he does, but he doesn't love everyone in the same way. Those who, by faith, have become children of God, have a special relationship with the Lord such that the verb is used, they are beloved of God, and the noun is used corporately to describe them as the beloved. So you don't discipline your next-door neighbor's kids. It's not because you don't love them but you have a special affinity for your own children, and those are the ones God has called you to discipline. Now, the Greek word here for scourge is the word that means to flog or to spank. Mastagao is the Greek word. It means to spank. God sometimes starts with a slap on the hand or with a swift pat on the backside. You say, how does God do that? Does he bring the rod out of the sky? And No, of course not. But like by saying no to some prayer that he might otherwise say yes to. Psalm 66, 18, right? If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. That is a verse written not to the lost man, but to the believer. Your sin has made a separation between you and your God so that he does not hear. That is a promise that you could apply it 
spiritually speaking, to the unbeliever, but it directly applies to the believer. Because there's willful disobedience in the heart, God's not listening. Some people say, well, God doesn't hear the prayer of a lost man. Yes, he hears some prayers of some lost people. He certainly hears their cry out for salvation. And in Acts chapter 10, he heard the prayers of Cornelius. Your your prayers have ascended to God as a memorial. He was lost. How do I know? Because Acts 11 tells me he was lost. And Peter talks about it, and he uses the word how he got saved. Now, does God generally, you know, respond to the prayers of lost people? No. In fact, all of the promises for answered prayer are given in reference to believers. But God will sometimes answer the prayer of a lost man because he's drawing that lost man like he was with Cornelius to himself. But sometimes, just like you'll say no, you, just like you take away a privilege from your child, there's the blank if you're trying to figure it out, if you haven't already. Uh, so, so sometimes God withholds a privilege from us. I would love to answer that prayer, but I would love to g- give you this privilege, but there's an issue that's got to be addressed first. And if I ignore it, I wouldn't be a good parent. Sometimes we're spanked by God and that God removes some of our privileges as a form of discipline. David talks about that in Psalm 32, right, where he refused to confess his sin and he just was weary and all the energy was drained out of him, his joy was gone, just like his parents. Some of the blessings we would like to give a child are withheld, Sometimes we are disciplined by God in a more severe way, by physical sickness. In the same way, a parent might spank for willful, persistent disobedience. Now you've gone past a rebuke. Now you've gone past, no, that toy that you're fighting over. I'm just going to take it away. We're going to put it up here on the shelf. And then you get to a point where, no, you know, this is just willful disobedience. I need to spank. And sometimes God spanks from heaven with sickness. That, of course, is the context of what James is referring to. Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if, and it's a first-class conditional statement, meaning he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Therefore, in this context, you confess your sins one to another. You don't sit around in a group and say, well, what are your sins this week? The Bible says we should confess them to each other. And, you know, he's talking about someone in the church who's under the discipline of the elders. And because they refused to repent of their sin, they were spanked from heaven. 1 Corinthians 11.30 speaks of some at the Lord's table in Corinth. Some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are asleep. Some of you died sooner than you should have because of God's discipline. 1 John speaks of a sin that leads to death, and he's talking about physical death. So that's, like a, that, that, that's a more severe spanking where God just does what he has to to get our attention sometimes. And I'm not saying it has to be sickness. And with that qualifier, um, number 18, please understand the Bible does not teach that everyone who is sick under the disciplining hand of God does not teach that everyone who is sick is under God's disciplining hand. But there are probably more people than we realize who are sick due to their sin. So 
this is important, and if you're not sure on the James passage, I have a whole message on it where I walk through it. It has nothing to do with these guys who travel the country with a bottle of anointing oil. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with someone. And the reason they're coming to the elders is because the elders ultimately are those who are responsible for church discipline. Something that virtually unheard of today, I know. While God loves the whole world, he has set a special love upon those who are his children, right? He came to his own, his own received him not, John writes, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Or Galatians 3, he talks about how by faith in the Lord we are children of God. So we're not all God's children beyond a creative sense. Spiritually speaking, you have to receive Christ because through the second birth, God has fathered us and made us his own. And so Hebrews 12 verse 7 says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The premise of verse 7 given by the writer of the Hebrews is that parents understood that it was their responsibility to discipline their children. And so they did this very thing. He's obviously speaking to the heads of the household, but he doesn't exclude it to men only. The mother has an equal role. But, you know, what dad just ignores a kid who's rebellious? Of course not. He's going to spank him because he loves him. I realize there are some parents who fail to spank their children as they reason to themselves and sometimes others. I just love him so much I can't spank him. Typically meaning, I just love me so I can't spank them. See, it is sometimes it just makes us uncomfortable, which is why mom often waits or wants dad to administer it, and dad often wants mom to administer it, because nobody enjoys disciplining their children. I mean, I hope you don't. I hope, oh man, I can't wait to get home and spank my kid. Something wrong with you if you think that way. But does God talk about spanking? Yeah, for instance, here's three texts from Proverbs. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with the rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from Sheol. Sheol here, there's two dimensions of it in the Old Testament. There's righteous Sheol, which no longer exists, also called Abraham's bosom. It was emptied out at the, resurre- at the ascension of Christ. Um, and then there's unrighteous Sheol called Hades, and it's the place where lost people go. And sometimes the shaping of a child becomes critical to their eternal destiny. I mean, you talk to these people, I've been in a lot of prisons over my life, ministering to prisoners, and you just find out about their family, nobody cared about them, no one ever disciplined them. And they turn into hoodlums and murderers sometimes. I remember I hadn't been here five years, but a teenage girl, she murdered her mother. Her mother had just started coming to our church. I was privileged to lead the mother to Christ. She hid with two older men, beat the mother with a baseball bat until she was dead, and I won't even begin to tell you what they did with her body. But I remember talking to that new Christian mother. She was just fresh in the faith. 
And she told me she had never spanked her daughter before. Now her daughter was 16. You had a problem. And it was a problem. The rod and reproof gives wisdom. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Unfortunately, in our 21st century culture, parents seem to go to one of two extremes. Sometimes they're excessively stern, and so it is essential that we are spirit-filled because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. You are never to punish your children in order to satisfy your pride. I've had people in the office. They come in for counseling. And mom said his pride was hurt. That child embarrassed him publicly. That's not a motivation. That's not the motivation behind spanking a child because your child embarrassed you or to escape embarrassment, but you discipline them for their good. The other extreme, why? Because that's what God does. We, we have their good in mind. The other extreme is a permissive parenting style with no discipline, which is usually the reaction of a parent raised in an abusive home. That's just a knee-jerk reaction. Child grows up beaten by their parents till they're black and blue, and then they get married, and they say, I'm never going to spank my child. Just because their parents administered it all wrong doesn't mean that they shouldn't administer discipline unless we think we're smarter than God because God's very clear on this. A sign of your love is to spank your children. And I'm not talking about child abuse, but loving, controlled discipline with a separate inanimate object to the padded area that God has provided. He uses the word back, and it's a Hebrew word that refers to you behind. It's padded. God's word teaches that we are to use the rod and not our hand, which is designed to reach out to love and to embrace with. So you don't put your child over your knee and then start banging them with your hand. God teaches a separate instrument, an instrument of discipline. Don't even take something off your person like a belt. Don't even use a toy. Use a distinct instrument. That's what God has in view here. But you never use your hand. That, those hands you want to reach out and love them with, not to spank them with. If you're not a person who can control his emotions such that you are prone to abuse your child, then it would be best for the alternate parent to administer the discipline or to use some alternative way to correct. If both parents have a problem, then I'm going to say you come up with a solution. And here's the thing as a pastor. Someone comes in my office, and, and I have a feeling they're going to tell me something about child abuse. I just say, hold on just a second. Just know if you tell me that your child has been abused, then by law I have to pick up the phone and call the police. So just know that up front. Now, there's a part of me that if I feel like a child is being abused, man, I'm going to do whatever I can to protect that child. If the parents won't cooperate, I'm going to protect the child. But some parents just need some help. And when you throw them into a jail or you take the child away for six months or a year, 
I know two Campus Crusade for Christ staff, this was back in the 1980s, they had their three children taken away, and they didn't get to see them for eight months because of some overactive bureaucrat who felt like they were unworthy parents. And you got to be careful in our day. I'll tell you a personal experience. We're eating in a, up in, uh, it was called Blimpies at the time, no longer exists, and I had my little three-year-old Jameson with us, and he just kept reacting. I said, Jameson, i got to spank you, man. It just got to that point. And I took him outside, and I opened up the side van door, and we had the little rod in there, and I spanked him. And I loved him and hugged him. And about two hours later, a police officer shows up at my door. And some lady in the parking lot was watching me. She took down my plate number. And a police officer shows up in our living room. And he comes in and he says, oh, Pastor Brogy, I love you. I listen to you on the radio. He says, but I have no choice. i got to be here. I said, you're doing your job. He said, I have to remove the child's pants or ask you to remove the pants to see if there is any marks on his behind. So I took down the little guy's pants and thank God there was no red marks. Because <laughs> sometimes, you know, when you use the rod and you use it just, you're going to leave a little mark. Black and blue, that's abuse. But you see, you've got to be careful. All of our parental rights are being stripped. We saw it this past week with the case in Texas, the dad with his twin children, and the court ruled that even though the dad is convinced one of these boys should not be dressed up like a girl, and when he's home with him, you know, the child wants to be a boy, and when Dr. Mother gets the child during the week, she convinces him he's a girl. And the court rules that the father has lost his rights, and they're going to begin chemical castration on a little boy. You talk about a sick world. You talk about child abuse. Be careful when you discipline your children. Don't do it anywhere in public. We're living in a day where you can't trust anyone. Um, the key is loving and controlled discipline because God's punishment that is administered in discipline to his own is different from God's punishment administered in judgment to the lost. There's a big difference. God deals with the lost in the end in his wrath. He deals with us in his love. As Christians, sometimes we experience God's loving punishment for our sins, but we will never experience God's judgment for them if we've been born again. And this is an important difference we must understand as parents because God has propitiated. The word propitiate means to appease wrath. All of God's wrath, 100% of it, has been satisfied in a substitute, the Lord Jesus. That means God never deals with you out of, man, you blew it, and I'm, gonna, I'm angry at you, man, and I'm going to punish you for what you've done. 
No, God's anger is, his wrath is totally satisfied in Christ. That's the doctrine of propitiation. And if you're not sure what that means, listen to my sermon out of the Romans series. It would be in the third chapter. Because God has propitiated, that is all of his just anger that our sin deserves has been taken out in Christ. The discipline we know is not with God as our judge, but with God as our father. The word propitiate means to appease anger. And so John can write, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So he can write, we love because he first loved us. Through proper discipline, children learn how to function in a family and in society that is full of boundaries, rules, and laws by which we must all abide, and most critically, this results in their hearts being directed to God. When disciplining your child, either physically or through privileges withdrawn or other creative means that God may give you, you should state boundaries and commands and expectations clearly and concisely. As parents, we cannot flip-flop when a child tries to bargain or negotiate because he will try to test us to see if we will give in to his pleas. Our authority must be clearly and consistently established. And whenever it is possible, we should teach the biblical principles involved. Show by example that you listen to them as you expect them to listen to you and remember to affirm and to show physical love after disciplinary consequences that are age-appropriate and not excessive. In other words, the punishment must fit the crime, so to speak. Our children, and you know, I say age-appropriate, you know, you're dealing with a 3-year-old far differently than you would say with a 17-year-old. Our children need to learn that our actions bring consequences, but they also need encouragement when they make good choices. You know, they, they should hear more praise than they should chastisement. If we're one of these dads and we're just ragging on our kids 24-7, that's terrible. They need to hear praise and affirmation. Oh, what you did at the restaurant, I was so proud of you, the way you behaved. You know, when we would go places, even we had expectations for our children. say, now we're going into this public restaurant, and here's some things that we're going to do, and here's some expectations dad and mom have for you. And we kind of walked them through it and uh, what their behavior should look like because we have to train them. And then when we got back in the car, we would just affirm them and say, man, you guys did so good, and you give them praise and affirmation. Our children need to learn that our actions bring consequences. 39, they need to know the benefits of obeying and making good choices, as well as the negative consequences for disobedience. Remember, God disciplines us out of a relationship with himself. And so as a child grows, he does not typically rebel so much against the rules as much as he will rebel against the relationship with the parent. That's why you want to keep that relationship close from the time they're little boys and girls. You always want your children to feel close to you and hard. And, and that involves time and commitment. 
when I first became the pastor of this church, this guy and that guy, they asked me to do this thing. I said, you just need to know where I go and my kids go. These guys wanted me to go play golf with them. I said, look, I'm a lousy golfer. I'm going to tear up the course. But if you don't mind, I'll come. But I'm going to have three in tow. Because my time with my children was precious. And if they didn't like that, they wouldn't invite me back. And I didn't play much golf. (laughs) Next to spending time alone with God and then with your spouse, time with your children is key to both shaping and correcting them in love. Let's bow in prayer and we'll bring some of these needs that were brought before us. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for your word and its truth that our relationship with our children needs to reflect the kind of relationship that you have with us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the very punishment that we deserved in full, you took out on your cross as the Father and the Spirit forsook you and you experienced spiritual death and as you shed your own blood and gave your physical body for us there in Golgotha. We're so thankful, thankful that the Father is satisfied, that you can shout it is finished, and that through faith in your finished work, you have reckoned us and given us the right and the authority and privilege to be called children of God. Thank you that you deal with us in love. Thank you for the love of the Spirit that has been poured out in our hearts. You're so good. Help us to grasp your commitment to discipline us and shaping us, your discipline in correcting us, that we would take the way you are raising us and carry that into our own families. Now, Father, we think of the scores and scores of little children across our county that are in church nowhere. So make our church family sensitive to the Harvest Festival as we see families, Father. Help us to remember to invite them because we know for some these are families that will come by divine appointment. And you will later bring them back on our campus where they will hear the plan of salvation and have a different kind of life because dad and mom have met you. Good news is to share. Help us not to be complacent And so captured by the entertainments of this day that we don't see people the way you see them. So we pray as we move into this season in the next 10 days that you would do something that only you could do, but use us as we work with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.